Hi, I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, New York Times bestselling author and TV journalist. And this is Unchained TV's Voice America podcast. For the next hour, you will hear the solution to most of the problems that plague our world. And it's a solution mainstream media ignores, even though it only requires us to make one simple change. Want to know what it is and transform your life? Let's get started. Hello! I am so honored and delighted to have one of the leaders of Mercy for Animals on today, Mamta Jane Valderrama. And you are a Senior Vice President of Operations at Mercy for Animals, overseeing finance and technology, two of the most important aspects of life in today's world. Welcome. And please tell us what you do at Mercy for Animals, which is one of America's leading animal rights organizations and an organization that I've been a fan of for so many years. Thank you, Jane. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so grateful for uh, giving giving me the chance to join you today. And I have to just tell you personally, I grew up in LA and I grew up watching you on KTLA. So getting a chance to be with you today is, is really special for me. Um, and I love working at Mercy for Animals. I have been there for about a year and a half now. Um, I came through the corporate world, which is different from a lot of my coworkers and how they arrived in the animal rights space. And I think we might get into a little bit of my story a little bit later. Um, but uh, my role specifically as um, overseeing operations is doing a lot of what I'll call the back office support. So my team's job and responsibility is to make sure the train stays on the track. We're getting the people um, working on the campaigns, working on investigations, lobbying the government, making sure that they have everything that they need to be as effective as possible. And it is such a pleasure and an honor to get to do that every single day. So break it down for us a little bit. What exactly um, do you do? Because it's a really incredible organization, generally known for um, undercover investigations. And uh, the undercover investigations that Mercy for Animals have done are just monumental. They've blown the lid off of the factory farming industry. They've gotten tremendous mainstream coverage. But I also understand under Leah Garces, the new leader who I've met and uh, a huge fan of, that you're expanding your horizons and you're um, really looking at it from a global perspective, from a sociological, cultural perspective. How do we change the culture, which is really the fundamental question. What we are looking for is a cultural shift that really informs people that all of this killing, all of this torture, all of this violence is so unnecessary. It's obviously horrible for the animals, but it's also terrible for human health. And it's also terrible for the environment when we're in the midst of a climate crisis. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you, Jane. Yep. Um, under the leadership of our president, Leah Garces, I, I have to say the agenda of um, how we're pushing the animal rights movement forward has really changed, I think, in a very positive way. Leah's leading ethos and everyone that um, works alongside her, we all believe in bridging gaps and crossing, uh, holding hands across aisles. So turning adversaries um, into friends, you know, that's, that's essentially what the ethos is behind all of the work that we are doing. In the past, historically in the animal rights movement in our space, we have demonized the factory farmers. And over time, we've come to realize that they themselves are victims of these systemic problems as well in many ways. The families that they support in the communities in which they live in, the same thing. There is a very significant human toll. And so that's, that's an example of a major shift in how we approach the work that we're doing. The goal is to change the system. It's also to make sure that all of the other intersectional issues that are coming about as a result of factory farming are addressed as well. So, for example, the populations that are disproportionately affected by factory farming happen, happen to be people that are traditionally considered, considered marginalized, whether economically or by race um, as well. And so we really try to take a holistic approach and an inclusive approach to everything that we're doing to drive some really meaningful change at local, state, federal levels, within corporations, 
full-on investigations, going undercover, you know, really maximizing impact and attracting audiences in lots of different ways. Well, I saw that on your front page of Mercy for Animals and everybody just go to mercyforanimals.org and sign this petition. We are in the midst of a grueling heat wave. Recently, 3,500 chicks were found dead, baked to death, essentially at Miami airport because they are sent like so much mail. And this is outrageous to me that we're mailing live animals and it's been going on for many, many years. But right now it's unconscionable, especially because these animals will die if they're sitting in a warehouse when it's 90 degrees outside and they're in some kind of container that raises the temperature even more. That's exactly what happened. I know there's a petition urging the USDA to change its rules. I certainly don't rely on the USDA to do anything. They're run by a dairy trade group leader, Tom Vilsack, who is a dairy industry executive. So uh, USDA is pretty much the meat and dairy industry. And so um, it's very important, however, to speak truth to power and to let these folks know, you know, we we're watching, we're doing something. So tell us a little bit and then we're going to get to your story, which is so fascinating. But tell us a little bit about how Mercy for Animals is working with farmers and ranchers. You know, as Dr. Silas Rao, who is the founder of Climate Healers and one of my heroes says, we're all being factory farmed. Uh, The people who eat the food that get them sick, the fast food, which is primarily the the portal for meat and dairy, they eat the fast food, they become sick, then they industries make money off of selling them pigs and selling uh, uh, pills and operations. We also have the farmers and the ranchers who are being factory farmed put in terrible debt, treated as indentured servants pitted against each other in tournaments. Literally, they call it tournaments where who can fatten up the birds fast enough and faster gets a financial reward. And then, of course, uh, you have the entire planet that's being factory farmed. And it's one of the leading reasons why we're in a climate crisis, even though the powers that be when they pass legislation or they meet at the COP26 meetings, they don't seem to be paying much attention to the role of factory farming. Indeed, we had a reporter at COP26 in Glasgow who went, the only reporter who actually videotaped the menu and saw ham sandwiches and um, couldn't believe that they were selling ham sandwiches at a climate conference. And then the Washington Post wrote a letter, uh, wrote an op-ed piece. They published a piece that said, they put the, the climate price tag of every food item that they sold at the COP conference, given that the meat items were so much higher in the climate price than the vegan items, why did they even serve them or sell them? And that's the Washington Post, not a uh, <laughs> not a, an animal rights publication. So what are your thoughts on all of that and how Mercy for Animals is trying to wake people up that we are all being factory farmed? Yeah, thanks for that question, Jane. So I think there's two big things happening here. One is um, people don't have a good sense of connection between where their food is coming from and what is on their plate. You know, what actually ends up on the plate looks nothing like the original source of that food when it comes to animal products. Unlike if you take a, a head of lettuce, you clean that up, you cut it, you put it on a plate, it still very much looks like a a head of lettuce or a part of a head of lettuce. And um, I think that your audience is a group of people that already have that awareness. and, um, And that's something that we're looking to change, you know, through education, through bringing awareness of what the original food source is for a lot of these animal, um, animal based foods, making helping people to make that connection. I think that's, that's, one of the issues that we're looking to address through our work. The second and more directly um, and immediate is this work we're doing around a program called Transformation. And it might be something that you've heard of or some of your listeners are familiar with. It's it's a pretty innovative uh, project for MFA. It's something that we are just getting off the ground. It's been a couple years in the making. 
Um, and it's an opportunity to help these farmers transition their land out of factoring animals to fact to growing, um, uh, excuse me, from factory farming of animals to growing plants and, and transitioning their land into a profitable farm that is uh, moving out of um, animal factory farming and into plant-based farming. And we've had some initial um, success. We have a lot of excitement around this. This is something that we are hoping to grow in the future and expand um, potentially um, as we get gain more knowledge and more information about how to make this potentially more scalable to help these really helpless farmers like you addressed um, move out of the, the real system that is not working in their favor. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of them are scared. They need some guidance and they don't want to have to reinvent the wheel themselves if there were programs and infrastructure that allow them to pull their resources and have a cooperative, have people who consult with them. And I know that's exactly what you guys are doing over at Mercy for Animals. I think we've got a caller, Sarah in Atlanta, your question or thought. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you about general things that people could do in, like, a lot of people are touring this uh, summer, and I noticed that a lot of people are riding on carriage horses, and there's been a lot of, like, um, carriage horses that have collapsed, and, you know, it doesn't cost, you don't have to, like, take, you know, like, when if you replace them with electric carriages, you wouldn't have to you know, feed the carriages, water the carriages, you know, find a place for them to live. And I just wondered if, if people, if maybe Mercy for Animals could give, like, tourist tips for people that are traveling this summer, maybe alternative um, vacation spots other than, like, going to aquariums or going to dolphin stuff. Because I see so many people doing that, and maybe if they had an alternative, that would be something that they would, know better. You know what I mean? That's something I would always had didn't know when I was growing up. Thank Great. you. I, I love that question. Cruelty-free vacations. Again, we're talking about a cultural shift. Uh, we know that Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey went out of business with the animals. They're trying to come back with, without the animals, but that's a really good example of when the culture just basically stood up thanks to the work of many animal rights organizations over the decades and said, enough, enough with lions and tigers jumping through flaming hoops. Yeah, thank you for that question, Sarah. And it, it's um, you've really touched on something personal for me as well. I'm based just out of the Phoenix metro area in Arizona. And in the summer heat, the, um, all of us are running to indoor locations, um, entertainment indoors, especially while people like me who have children, we're looking for things for our children to do. And typically we would be waking up and going for walks and hikes and doing a lot of outdoor things in this in the sweltering heat of a place like where I am, I'm not sure where you live, um, you know, it, those are really not possible unless you're doing it at 5 a.m. Uh, from 5 to 6 a.m. You know, there's a very short window of time when you're not really stuck indoors. So people tend to run to aquariums. Um, even the zoo is a popular location. A lot of the parts of the zoo are shaded. Um, and I think you've hit on something that's really important. Um, it's a really nice topic that we we would definitely maybe consider pursuing in um, in one of our publications about uh, cruelty-free vacations. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is um, look up the alternatives that are available um, because I know every major city where popular tourist destinations are with really beautiful, fancy aquariums, um, they also tend to have other um, destinations and other attractions that um, that you can attend. And so I'd really encourage you to do a lot of research and spend time on that. I know that's not always the fun part of vacation, but uh, is the planning. But um, but that would be my, my immediate um, point of feedback or option for you to consider. Yeah, there's a lot of cruelty built into tours uh, on Unchained TV. We feature Sangeeta Iyer's uh, Elephant Matrix series, uh, which is a beautifully shot series that documents how these poor elephants in India and other parts of the world are literally ripping their families and broken. I mean, it's, there is no way to force an animal to entertain without 
breaking them down when they're a wild animal, ripping them away from their families. And so we again, it, it boils down to what you were talking about, a cultural shift. So tell us about yourself, because you have such a fascinating history. You spent a decade in the healthcare industry handling multi, multi million dollar accounts. And you decided at one point, mm, I've got to move away from corporate America and follow my passion. Correct me if I'm wrong, but tell me about all of that. Sure. Thanks, Jane. So just uh, I'll, I'll give you the short version. Otherwise, you'll, you'll get stuck here with me. So um, <laughs> I, um, I grew up always thinking that I would end up working in the healthcare space. Um, never was really attracted to the clinical aspect. So actually being a nurse or a physician, but was really interested in helping to improve access to healthcare for people who were disadvantaged, people who um, didn't, couldn't afford insurance or couldn't afford enough of it. So for the last 10, 15 years, I pursued a career doing various versions of healthcare access uh, that led down a road of getting involved in healthcare operations. So managing what was happening inside the brick and mortar walls of several different types of clinics. Um, and then later on a startup pharmacy. And I think it was after, you know, a combination of Taking time off to pursue a passion project, I took time off to write a, a book that's rooted in human rights and social activism. Um, I became a mother in the same time frame. Um, when I came back to work, I really felt a calling to do something that was more aligned with my own values and my mission. I thought if I'm spending between 40 to 60 hours every week on something, I really want it to be something that matters to me um, and something that would feel fulfilling. And so, um, I just started a very loose search. I really didn't know what to expect. I just started a very easy search online for different job opportunities. And very quickly, the opportunity for senior vice president of operations at Mercy for Animals popped up. And honestly, Jane, I thought it, I was dreaming. I thought that there's there's no possible way this, this is an old posting. They already have somebody in mind. Um, there, there's no way. And I slept on it for about 24 hours. And, you know, there was one night I just, I just couldn't shake it. And I thought, just, you know, just apply and just see what happens. And, and then they called and then they called again. And, um, and so I'm, I'm feeling very aligned with my personal values for the first time professionally. I feel very excited to come to work every day in a way that's different than I was working than when I was working in the corporate space. And um, I wake up grateful every day for, for getting to do this work. Uh, that's a fascinating story. I think so many people are jealous because they're trapped in some corporate jobs that don't fulfill them spiritually and they're looking for something more. All right, we've got Lindsay and Tarzana. Your question or thought, uh, Lindsay from Tarzana. Hi there, uh, Jane, and um, thank you so much for um, talking about this issue. My question is, because we know yesterday uh, it was on the news that the Senate passed a so-called sweeping climate bill. I don't know if you talked about this already, but how, do, I mean, as far as what you might have found out so far, how will this impact on uh, animal agriculture and its uh, impact on climate change. Will that be addressed at all? Um, that's my question number one. Second part of my question, um, I see here in the uh, comment to contact the USDA, is there a link or actionable link we can take to go ahead and make that action that you have here to contact the USDA? Do you have a link for that? Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Lindsay. Absolutely. So I'll, do you, I'll answer your second question first, because that's a little bit easier. So if you visit www.mercyforanimals.org, directly on our website, on our homepage, you will find a link to sign that petition. So you should be able to find it there. It's right there on the front page, and I signed it this morning. I was reading about you, and I was like, this is fantastic. I've been outraged for years of course, attending vigils where you see pigs coming into the slaughterhouse here near downtown LA frothing at the mouth. And it's like, how are we as a supposedly civilized society allowing this to happen? With climate change, it's gotten even worse because these animals are traveling, the weather's getting more extreme. They're traveling either in extreme cold or extreme heat. 
and they don't get water. Um, as you know, there are people who have been arrested for literally trying to give water to these animals when they're stopped outside the slaughterhouse. Um, let's talk climate change because uh, Bernie Sanders has said this is going to be have a minimal impact on inflation. Well, what I said when I looked at it is this is going to have a minimal impact on climate change because they are not addressing uh, the biggest issue that nobody talks about. Animal agriculture's impact on climate change. Indeed, the Biden administration gave a billion dollars to uh, subsidize new slaughterhouses. There are USDA programs that encourage low income communities to start growing chickens, which makes absolutely no sense if you're already struggling financially to to have another mouth to feed doesn't make any sense. So uh, it's also not healthy. Um, It seems like the government is completely deaf, dumb and blind when it comes to the issue of animal agriculture, even though scientists, um, people who are um, credible scientists, uh, IPCC reviewers, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reviewers have said, hey, this is a big part of the problem. It seems they're afraid to discuss it because the primary focus they have is reducing meat prices to combat inflation. Can you address that? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Lindsay, for that question on that as well. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we need to do better. The government needs to do better to include industrial animal agriculture when they're t- talking about climate change. It is the big missing link that we have seen and experienced when there are legislation out there around climate change. Now, the one thing that I will say that gives us hope is that this is starting to take center stage. Climate change is starting to take center stage. We will do everything in our ability to ride the coattails of the recent headlines to continue to put a spotlight on the role of animal agriculture in climate change. But overall, there is definitely a lot of opportunity for our agenda to be at the top of this discussion. It is a huge problem that it is a missing link. Um, and we that's part of the reason that we do so much work around uh, state, federal, and local um, lo- uh, government work, policy work, to drive some of these changes to continue to bring the awareness um, and the education. Now, in addition to that, because we know that there is big gap there. We know how strong the uh, the lobbying efforts are of the various parts of the meat industry. They are funneled and fueled by millions and millions of dollars. And we try to offset a lot of that or continue work in a different avenue to help also build awareness. So we see that there are challenges with the government. So we try to open other doors and other opportunity. And one way that we do that is through corporate engagement. So we do a lot of work with big multinational corporations to either bring additional plant-based options to those, uh, to those corporations. We do a lot of education campaigns. We do a lot of campaigns to replace um, and take center stage on a plate of replacing a meat-based meal with a plant-based meal. So we put a lot of effort and focus on other avenues to offset some of these challenges with the government and try to find other avenues to push, um, to push the work forward around, um, around factory farming, the climate issue, um, and as a result of, of factory farming as well. Yeah. And, the Farm Bill comes up for renewal in 2023, and of course, already uh, the meat, dairy, and pharmaceutical industry, which is very connected to the meat and dairy industry, because if people stopped eating meat and dairy, they wouldn't eat all those pills and all those operations. So they're kind of a triad, meat, dairy, pharmaceuticals. They're in there lobbying for the billions, tens of billions of dollars in subsidies to the commodity crops that go into factory farmed animals, whereas a tiny sliver goes to fruits, vegetables, nuts, and grains that humans actually consume directly. And it's no exaggeration to say that our future, the future of our planet could depend on somehow uh, getting to uh, legislatures, uh, legislators before the farm bill is renewed. Because if they just continue on with the massive subsidies to the meat and dairy industry, and that really just is one of the primary drivers uh, of 
animal agriculture. There's a good argument to be made that without the subsidies, animal agriculture would completely collapse. The average fast food burger that costs two dollars uh, and is making everybody sick and two thirds of Americans overweight or obese, that would be 10 to 15 dollars. Uh, if not more, and therefore people would make different choices. This whole notion that, as John Doerr says, you know, people are going to eat what they're going to eat. Nonsense. They're going to eat what they can afford. You're subsidized. You've got the thumb on the scale. And, you know, talking to a whole bunch of really incredible movers and shakers in the plant meat alternative tech sector, one thing that was said really struck me is somebody said, if we want to achieve the cultural change, we have to make plant-based alternatives cheaper than even the heavily subsidized meat and dairy. And one of the ways that that's happening is through uh, all sorts of, um, I would say, fermentation. We interviewed uh, the leader of a company out of Israel that is fermenting microalgae, which is an incredibly easy, renewable resource that is absolutely high in protein and incredible. And they're, uh, they're fermenting it in vats the size of gyms. That's going to be cheaper. And then you have out of Belgium, a company called Paleo. In fact, I'm working on their story today. We interviewed them last week. Fascinating. They have bio-identical um, meat that doesn't even require an animal's bi- biopsy. And I asked him, how is that possible? He said, we just replicate the DNA sequencing and we use a yeast protein. I'm not a scientist, so I hope I'm translating it. But again, the idea is that it would be produced in giant vats. So those high-tech solutions are what give me hope. Definitely not the U.S. government coming to its senses. I don't see that happening, unfortunately. So I love your approach of going to corporations. And uh, we're going to take a short break here on Voice America Radio. sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We get Guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Welcome back to Unchained TV on Voice America Radio. I'm Jane Velez Mitchell, and you are now re entering a portal to a transformative way of living. Back with the extraordinary Mamta Jane Valderrama, Senior Vice President of Operations at Mercy for Animals. And you've been hearing about how they're going big with corporations. This is what I don't get. If I was a buggy mogul, a horse and buggy mobile at the turn of the uh, 20th century, uh, right around the time cars were coming in, and somebody said, Look, you know what? You're, you're, 
it's not going to be happening, your industry. Here's this other industry. Why don't you get in on this early? And I said, oh, no, no. I mean, absolutely not. I'd rather feed and house my horse and buggies. And then all of a sudden the cars come in and I'm out of business. It's kind of a similar situation for these meat companies. In Kansas, there was somebody who on TikTok just showed a video of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of cows that keeled over from the heat. It was a rolling video. It was something out of a horror movie. They're all with their legs right in the air. They keeled over from the heat. This is going to start happening in a lot of places. The cost of feed is going up. Um, the drought is making it much harder to even provide the necessary basics for these animals. There is an alternative. We know that the big meat, there's only about six or seven ginormous meat companies that keep this whole operation going. We know that they have, some of them have, JBS has a vegan line. I've tasted it. It's very good. Um, are you working with some of them to help them make the shift? Because ultimately it's in their self-interest. If they can get a giant vat of fermented uh, product that tastes just like pork or, or beef, and they don't have to raise all these animals who are now dying in the midst of heat, um, not even making it to the slaughterhouse because they're dying in the heat on the trucks. Um, I think it's a win-win. I mean, they can still sell stuff and it would be cheaper for them in the long run. So we do a lot of education with corporations about the increasing demand, the way the economics of the plant-based food market um, as a way to get the corporations interested. We really have to speak in their speak, right? They're motivated by dollars and cents. They have boards of directors that need to approve and that they are looking at the bottom line every single day. And so we are, um, we are taking that kind of approach. We're showing them the purchasing power that's growing, it's shifting, how supply and demand is shifting, the unsustainability of factory farming over time, and the need for corporations to make a shift if they want to continue to survive and thrive, um, that it's, it's just undeniable. I mean, anyone of us and your listeners know how unsustainable the factory farming actually is, not just to the climate, but um, in being able to feed the world's population. It's, it's just not going to be a sustainable solution. And the sooner that corporations wake up to that and start diversifying, start shifting some of their investment away from the meat products into plant-based, I think in the longer term, the better off they're going to be. Absolutely. And with this new I'm very excited about this company, Paleo, out of Belgium that can make it, it. He said it doesn't taste something like meat. It tastes exactly like meat. Wow. Uh, and it's because it's bioidentical to meat. But without the pesticides, without the hormones, without the antibiotics, without all that terrible stuff that people who eat meat get today. Let's talk about you. Um, your story is amazing. Your middle name is Jane, J-I-A-N, and you were raised in the Jane culture. Being named Jane, J-N-E, I've always been interested. Tell us about that and how your upbringing, tell us about your upbringing and how it influenced your, your um, compassion for all beings. Sure. So Jane, um, J-A-I-N, like you said, uh, is a small religion um, or even a kind of a way of life. It's I would call it less of a religion and way, more of a way of life. Um, that started in India thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's not uncommon for people of the Jain faith to change their surname to match the, the name of the religion. This is also generations ago. So this is not you know, a decision my parents, for example, made. This was um, a, a decision that um, the followers of Jainism made many generations ago. And one of the reasons for that is because we have a very unique set of values and way of life compared to lots of other cultures. The main uh, primary value of Jainism is ahimsa, which is the Sanskrit word for nonviolence. And that means nonviolence to all sentient beings. So that's the reason that if any of you out there know somebody who is part of the Jain faith or Jain culture is likely vegetarian, if not vegan, um, because our goal is to minimize our harmful impact on any living being in the universe. Strict Jains, the most devout Jains, 
don't eat root vegetables. So for example, a potato. If you pull a potato root out of the ground, <clears throat> you not only kill the potato, but you also kill the original plant in, um, that, it, that it grew from. Whereas, for example, if you pick an apple off a tree, the tree continues to bear fruit um, even when you eat that apple. So um, the, the most devout Janes also wear something that looks like a mask. And the reason for that is because they want to minimize the harm that their hot breath has on the organisms living in the air, that um, that hot breath can kill the organisms. So they try to minimize the impact in every way um, that we can. So I was raised with these values. My parents are immigrants from India. I was born and raised in the United States along with my two siblings. Um, but these, these values were inculcated in me and my siblings from day one. And so this was the way that I was raised. There is a small, a relatively small Jane community, but growing in North America, um, but we are very organized and mobilized. We get together um, every single year. Um, we gather and we've had a lot of people that are involved in the animal rights and vegan movement um, come to our events, come to our con conventions. We also donate as, as a community and as a culture to Mercy for Animals and other animal rights organizations. Um, and I'm just so blessed to have been raised with these values. Um, and so it was, again, when it was time for me to kind of I don't know, you call it, call it my midlife crisis, Jane. I was just at the point where I wanted to do something that was more aligned with my values um, and had never really come across in a society, a community outside of my Jane culture that existed in the United States that had a lot of these same values. So it was um, equally exciting and fascinating to me when I came upon Mercy for Animals and now so many other wonderful organizations like the Humane League. Um, and others that um, that are really mission and mission aligned with staffed by amazing people that have uh, that all have the same goal. And so now you're able to take your personal beliefs and put it to work. How exciting. You've also written a best selling book. And I want to hear about that because, you know, when you think about it, all oppression is inter. Uh, it, there's an intersectionality of oppression. When one is oppressed, all is oppressed. I forget the famous person who said that, but it's true. So tell us about your book. Sure. So I took some time off from corporate America several years ago to write a book called A Girl in Traffic. It is about um, a type of human trafficking that doesn't get spoken about much. So it's not sex trafficking. It is actually about human kidney trafficking. So it's about the black market for organs, which many people don't know exists. Um, a lot of people, their extent of knowledge around this is maybe a movie where some, you know, some club goer wakes up in an ice bath and a sign that says, I've stolen your kidney or, or something like that. Um, and that's really a myth. Um, about how that actually happens, but it's true that there is a real market for uh, human kidneys. Um, every human being is born with two kidneys. You can live a thriving life with only one. So that makes it a relatively easy organ to steal compared to let's say hearts or lungs or something else that would actually kill the victim if it was stolen. And I apologize, I know this is pretty gruesome, um, but the book is essentially 10 years of true stories that I compiled. I then fictionalized it to make it into a thriller. I thought that if I made it um, entertaining at the same time as informative, that I would reach a wider audience. Uh, my protagonist is a vegetarian, of course, and, um, and that doesn't have much to do with the story, but I, I wanted you to know that that, was, that value carried through in, carries through in all of my other projects as well. Um, and this book has really opened a lot of people's eyes to this type of human suffering that, um, that is very real, that is a problem. Um, and if anyone is looking for a, um, a next book to read, I would I really encourage you to pick it up if you're somebody that's interested in human rights, social justice, um, and, uh, and I'd also be happy to participate in, in the discussion, book clubs, et cetera, if people want to learn more about this really horrible black market that, that is very much real. It also strikes me as it would be a great Netflix series. 
because it's already broken down into different stories. Wow. Um, hopefully it you can turn it into um, some kind of television project or movie project or documentary. That's brilliant. And uh, wow, you have such a wide range of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> it's really mind blowing. Now, you were in the healthcare industry and what always strikes me as just so crazy is that when the politicians talk about health care, they always talk about prescription drug prices. We've got to lower prescription drug prices, but rarely does the actual issue of health come into play or conversation. Obviously, if people were healthier and lived a healthier lifestyle, they wouldn't need all those prescription pills. Uh, again, we're all being factory farmed. There's such intersectionality with issues, with um, social justice, with oppression of um, the global majority, with uh, people's health care. And it all, in my humble opinion, boils down to what we're eating three times a day. If we cha- if we just changed our diets, imagine the healthcare costs would drop, and we could then not have such a huge deficit because it's such a big part of the deficit. And then we could simultaneously actually combat climate change. And yet, the best and the brightest, which by the way was a sarcastic title, the best and the brightest, brought us the Vietnam War. Um, thank you very much. You know, a quagmire, a horrific situation. Uh, and many Americans died as well as uh, many people overseas. And so the best and the brightest was look what these eggheads from these big universities can do if you just let them run the whole show. Why is it that that none of the power brokers are connecting the dots, this today's so-called best and the brightest? And how can we help them? Why don't we have allies in the healthcare uh, movement? Why don't we have allies in the um, <clears throat> world hunger? There are so many organizations that are fighting world hunger and they're serving meat to people. And when you say that that's the world's most inefficient food source, they laugh, they laugh in your face. They roll their eyes. Conservation groups, they want to save the rhinos and the elephants. But when you tell them, make your gala vegan, they uh, scoff at you. And the reason, the primary reason why these animals are being wiped out is not hunters, as much as I detest hunters. It's the elimination of their habitat for cattle grazing or to grow crops to feed the 80 billion animals we're raising every year and killing because they're eating a huge percentage of the food. How do we get to these groups? Yeah, this is a real problem, Jane. And I I hear you. And sometimes it gets frustrating to feel like a broken record, quite candidly. Of You know, if we focused on this one issue, how many other problems would be solved? So I'm 100% with you on the same page. And this is actually something that I think a lot of us at Mercy for Animals are really committed to and excited about is the potential to reach wider audiences. Um, we see the, the need exactly how you outlined it, Jane. I could not say it more eloquently or more thoroughly. So um, this is something that um, that we recognize is important in bridging these gaps, helping to do this cross-education, building alliances. You know, the power in numbers, it's, it's the supply and demand issue and the supply chain issue that I, that I mentioned before. If you, if you come together as a big influential group, that is how change is going to come. And so we are very supportive and open to the idea of building those alliances. So if anyone out there is listening and wants to start having those conversations, um, and we are also um, prepared to, to do a lot of that outreach and make those connections as well. But that is what it's going to take. To, to make these big, huge global changes to one problem that could solve so many others. The other thing I'll just comment on the American healthcare system, because you mentioned my background in healthcare, is there is such an emphasis on the, the medication. Like you said, I'm really glad that you pointed that out. And it is something that I'm starting to see a, a slow tide, very slow tide, but it is happening to address the systemic health issues of of a person and not just cover them through medicine or treat them um, retroactively. But prevention is going to be the key for us to also make a sustainable healthcare system. And there are definitely physicians that are taking more notice, people that are sitting up and making, um, trying to have their voices heard and making those changes. 
like any movement, it starts with a handful of really passionate people and it takes time to build that up. But I do see that happening and I do feel very hopeful. Tell me, uh, how do you, on a personal level, uh, keep it all together? Because you've written a book, not just telling the stories, then you fictionalized it. You've been in the healthcare industry. You're a uh, senior vice president of operations for Mercy for Animals. You have a daughter who you're raising. And I think a lot of people who are experiencing burnout right now in our movement would like to know, how do you keep it all together? Because you seem uh, to use a vegan metaphor as cool as a cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jane. I think that looks can be deceiving. I'll say that. Um, it, it is definitely a challenge. I will be honest with you, but I think being intentional really is what is required to, to maintain some normalcy, to maintain some kind of balance. My most important job is being a mother and, to my daughter and a wife to my husband. He also works full time and is a senior leader at his company. So we're both very busy working parents. So it is a lot of communication. It is a lot of coordination. It is a lot of commitment. We have made commitments to one another, all three of us in my family, about when is work time, school time, play time. Um, and we're really, um, we really keep, keep each other accountable to that. Um, and I have to be honest with you that when we're fueled by such healthy, good, nutritious food, that definitely helps. That keeps us all going. That gives us a lot of energy. It gives us a lot of excitement to try new things together and experiment. So that becomes a family affair. Um, you know, sometimes it feels like veganism is at the, at the root and the center of every other thing that we are and that we do. And um, I wouldn't change that for the world. And, and I'm, very, I'm very grateful for it. So as we wrap up, we have about four minutes. I'm very curious as you were raised in this Jane culture, how did that um, impact your upbringing when you go into the regular world, the high school or the corporate world, and you see such a disconnect between your beliefs and what's happening around you that you have to deal with every day? Um, we all deal with that as vegans, obviously, rat traps, barbecues all around us and it can be overwhelming but i would think particularly for somebody raised in the jane culture it might be a challenge thank you jane it definitely was you know my my experience with jainism with veganism vegetarianism is very much rooted in a lot of racial identity um ethnic ethnic identity um i have been mocked for this by adults and children um, I, um, I really associate it with, um, with what I look like, how I am, um, and how I show up every single day. And it was not easy being out there. And still, I am many times the only vegan um, in, the, in the room that I'm in. Um, the refuge that I found came in high school when I discovered all of these other Jane girls that were my age, you know, going through the similar things. They weren't at my school, but they, I found them through our local temple. This was the Southern California Jane Temple that's in Buena Park. Um, and that became such a refuge and a place to finally have people who I could identify with who had very similar life experiences growing up as first generation Americans, growing up being, um, having this um, hippie lifestyle or alternative diet. Um, and finding people that were like-minded was very helpful. I had only wished that I had come across Mercy for Animals a lot earlier because then I, you know, that was another kind of reckoning of finding my people um, that in, in adulthood that's been really wonderful. But what I would say is to anyone who is struggling, please know you are on the right side of this. You are on the right side of this global problem that is impacting every single human being please stick with it because no one who is, has ever achieved anything big was ever popular at the time they were doing it. They were considered crazy or out there or they don't know what they're doing. And over time, then we have accepted certain people as genius, as innovative, as progressive. And please, I just encourage everyone who's struggling or thinking about this 
please think about being on the right side of this issue. Absolutely. And you had, we have one last question you'd wanted to mention, uh, the global majority and how that figures into the vegan movement. Yeah, I I take a lot of pride as being a, a person of the global majority and being in the animal rights space. There is a small population of us that is continuing to grow in a very meaningful way and intentional way, which I'm so grateful for. But that is a passion of mine. I want to help amplify the voices of people of the global majority that are aligned with our lifestyle or curious about our lifestyle that are doing things to promote it as well. And um, I take a lot of pride in being able to support that work um, at Mercy for Animals and through the Global Majority Caucus and other avenues. Um, And that'll be a big part of the work that I continue to take on. One of the things that I find fascinating is like I'm Puerto Rican and Irish and um, other people, whatever their ethnicity, they often use their ethnicity as an excuse to keep eating animals. And what I say is go back to your roots and see that most of your food is plant-based. Like in the Puerto Rican culture, you have platanos, you have yuca, which is sort of a Caribbean potato. You have obviously rice, black beans, a plentiful fruit. There's no hamburgers there, right? And uh, the Irish side, you have cabbage, you have uh, potatoes, you have uh, so many greens. That's the green is Ireland. So I would love to see something where every single ethnicity on the planet, we show the plant-based diets based on that ethnicity, which is a perfect uh, reaction to anybody mentioning their background as why they have to keep eating burgers and shakes from a fast food joint. No, your actual actual, uh, heritage calls for plant-based. That would be a really fun thing. You know, I think it would be a positive way to make the point. I want to thank you so much. You've been such a delight, and I'm honored to have been able to spend an hour speaking with you. Uh, by the way, the Mercy for Animals Gala is coming up. Be there. Uh, I certainly want to and uh, plan to. And uh, just thank you and keep keep up the good fight. Thank you, Jane. I really appreciate you giving me the time. And uh, let's let's continue to fight together. <laughs> thank you. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.